Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, we are addressing progressive Christianity. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about politics, though they often go hand in hand. Progressive Christians tend to have progressive politics, but that's not at all our focus for today. Progressive Christianity is an outgrowth of liberal Christianity. Now, liberal Christianity, for those of you who are familiar with it, mainline denominations, they accepted the modernist ethos of the Enlightenment and merged it with Christianity. Likewise, progressive Christianity brings the assumptions and moral commitments of postmodernism to Christianity. So I don't, I don't know if that made sense, but liberal Christianity of years gone by brought in the Enlightenment mindset, the modernist mindset with all its scientism, with all its optimism about being able to definitely decide every little bit of the Bible that's true and every little bit that's false, and then whatever's true we'll live by. That was liberal Christianity. Progressive Christianity is very similar to that, but it's doing it not with modernism, but postmodernism. Thus, individual experiences and stories, especially from minorities, victims, and the disenfranchised, have higher authority than scripture, history, or logic. As a result, progressive Christians feel free to disagree with scripture if it seems to cause distress or difficulty for people. Our inner sense of goodness and personal purpose are the spiritual authorities, just like postmodernism, that should guide us, not what Jesus said, not what the church says, not what the Bible says. So today, I'm playing out a teaching by Mike Winger of Bible Thinker. Winger had served as a youth pastor and worship leader at a Calvary Chapel church in California before YouTube ministry became his full-time focus. His YouTube channel currently has nearly half a million subscribers, and his focus is on thinking biblically about life. I thought he made some really great points in this presentation that will sensitize you to the cultural creep that is slowly adjusting all of our moral compasses. Here now is episode 448, What's Wrong with Progressive Christianity, with Mike Winger. We're going to talk about progressive Christianity today, but let me explain the approach I'm going to take because I completely revamped over the last week of just marinating in this stuff, everything I was going to share with you. So let me tell a little story, which I don't, like never do when I start my studies. <laughs> but, um, the story is this. I was about 16 years old. My mom had all these symptoms. She was a single mom at the time, right? And had all these like symptoms. It was just the two of us in the house. And uh, my sister had already gone crazy and moved out. And... <laughs> My mom is, her stomach is really sick, she's throwing up, and she's, she's taking Tums, it's not helping, she's laying down, it's not helping, it's just getting worse. She's groaning, I hear her groaning from the other room. So finally, I, I think, we have to figure out what's wrong with her, <laughs> like, we've got to figure this out. And some of you remember the medical books that she would pull out, rather than Google, which I would argue are probably a better resource, because Google creates all kinds of paranoia. <laughs> Google's like, worst case scenario, <laughs> like, that's the first thing you get. But we open the medical book and I'm looking at all of her symptoms and it's like the medical book's like telling me, is her abdomen soft or is it hard? Or, you know, the things like I would never think to ask. And we end up finding she has appendicitis. There's all the, all the symptoms of appendicitis. And I'm like, mom, you have to go. To, I'm, I'm going to drive you or you're going to drive or we're going to call a paramedic. You, you have to go to the, the hospital. So she finally gets up and goes. And later she thanked me and she's like, if you hadn't pulled out that textbook to figure out what was wrong with me, I would have just, I mean, I could have died. The appendix could have burst because she just has a high pain tolerance, you know, so she was just kind of suffering with it. This is my approach right now to progressive Christianity. I want to look at the things that we tend to talk about with progressive Christians as symptoms and try to identify an underlying cause. This is something I was really struggling with, and I think I'm on the right track, and I'll share with you those thoughts. I think after like another six months of sitting with this, maybe I'll have better advice for it, but <laughs> I'll share what I got right now. So what is it really about? There's countless complaints against evangelical Christianity from progressive Christians, many of which have a lot of validity. There's obvious political commitments in progressive Christianity. They're more political than conservative Christians 
generally are. If you're a progressive Christian, you're like, no, we're not. You're like, you're, you have no mirror if you think that. But what's at the heart? What belief or idea is like at the very heart of it? So let's look at some of the leaders in the movement and some of the symptoms that carry across the movement as well as some things that are inconsistent. I think this will help you. All right, so try to track with me here um, because one of the symptoms is this. Churches get progressive Christianity like, a, forgive me if you're a progressive Christian, please hear me out. I'm just being straight with you, hey? Churches get this like a disease that kills them. Churches that go progressive come back a few years later and they're usually empty or they're meeting in like a, a bar, like five people, the kind of thing. It, it tends to kill churches. Not in every case. You might have a super dynamic speaker that can still have a gathering, but there's something in the core of it that just kills churches. This is whole movements have died because of this. Right? The, the largest denominations that are atrophying and dying the most are the most progressive ones, which is odd because the culture is extremely progressive too. So you can't act like they're just fighting against culture and culture doesn't like them. Something else is going on there. So here are some of the symptoms. Faith is celebrated, but not the faith. The Bible uses the term the faith to talk about like, this is annoying to many progressives, but to talk about doctrines that we're supposed to believe as Christians. So it really does use the term the faith, almost like a, like a, a term for doctrines, like b- things you believe about Jesus. Like he, he was born of a virgin and he, he, he was in the flesh. He lived a real human life. He didn't sin. He died. He physically rose from the dead. He did this for your sins. These, this is the faith. And, the, and I can give you lots of verses that talk about this, but I'll give you an example. First Timothy 4.1 talks about a warning for those who depart from the faith. Now, progressive Christians tend to think about faith as like sort of a, a quality you have. It's like a stuff that's in you that you want to nurture. It's not so important where it's directed. It's more important that it's nurtured and healthy and strong, right? But biblically speaking, faith is believing in the faith, the doctrines. And so only faith that's accurate counts. This seems oppressive to people, but I'm just saying this is the biblical perspective. So 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, the spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. And then notice how he describes what falling away from the faith looks like paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So you see, like, the the biblical perspective isn't that faith, this is more of a pop culture thing, that faith is like a feeling of stuff. That's why we we talk about people of faith or an interfaith event. I don't think the biblical authors would use those terms because they're operating from a different perspective. Faith is only valid and healthy and right when it's in the right things, when it's not doctrines of demons but doctrines of Christ, doctrines of God. Abandoning doctrine amongst progressive Christians is, is, is totally tolerated because of this perspective that the faith or the doctrines are not central to the Christian teaching, at least, at least not the doctrines that Christianity has typically focused on. The ideas of love are very central, okay? but those doctrines are not focused on. So abandoning doctrine is, is celebrated even. It's not only tolerated, but it's often very celebrated so that some people will feel they're brave. And I've seen this in progressive Christian groups I'm brave. I finally feel like I'm able to like give up the resurrection of Christ. And then people are like, that's very brave. How open-minded of you. And this is not in every progressive group, but this is in some. And it's definitely, I've heard progressives like, oh, I've literally heard them say, you know, I've really rethought, I've really deconstructed a lot of that evangelicalism stuff, but I just haven't, I'm not able to give up the resurrection of Jesus yet. And I'm like, that's a symptom of a problem. Like this is, this is not healthy. This is not biblical. It's definitely not Christian. So it's considered courageous. Some of the major influencers, we'll hear from some of them today. I'll, I'll quote some of them later and play a couple of videos for you. But uh, author Jen Hatmaker, Rob Bell, remember he was part of the Emergent Church. Um, the Emergent Church is the progressive church. There's not really a significant difference between the two. The names just change. Brandon Robertson, more of a TikTok star than anything else. John Pavlovitz, an author. Brian Zond, another author. Uh, scholars like Pete Enns or Greg Boyd, who, whether you would, I would consider him progressive, at least because he fits so many, several of the symptoms, but he would be one who has not given up the doctrines like the resurrection of Christ, so I'm not accusing him of that. Popular women's author like Glennon Doyle, she's probably the most well-known that I would consider in this camp. Richard Rohr, he's probably the most influential, even though he's not the most well-known. Uh, I think Elisa Childers calls him the Pope of progressive Christianity. <laughs> Even though he's really, he's the fuel for the fire of progressive Christianity for many people, even though he himself is, it's very odd, you'll you'll understand as we go along. 
But most of these people don't last. Here's another symptom. These leaders, as you Google them, I'm like, I want to find progressive leaders that at least have a bigger influence than me, right? Like a youth pastor in Southern California who started doing YouTube videos and teaching theology. I'm like, so who's at least bigger than me? And at the moment, and I know that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it that way because I don't think that my growth is an estimation of me. I think it's just, it's just an estimation of your potential influence. But it's really hard to find. Even guys like Rob Bell, like you look at their Google search curve and it's like, Rob Bell! And then the last like five years, yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> and I'm looking at these people and I go like, Brian's on, okay, yeah, kind of, an, and then his church is shrinking and then people just don't pay attention to him anymore. This is consistent, is that these leaders have blips, except for like Glennon Doyle has a massive current following, but that's because she doesn't focus at all on the religious, religious aspects anymore that she originally wrote about. So what, what is this? This is a symptom too. Churches die, but even the leaders themselves have a blip of big following, big influence in people's lives, but then they just fade. Why? What is going on here? I think this is a symptom. So I'm going to try and get into that. The progressive Christian individuals are hypercritical. Let's talk about some of their criticisms against evangelical Christianity. They are often critical of uh, evangelicals or they'll call fundamentalism. I, I always struggle to know what people mean when they say fundamentalism. I kind of want like a definition that holds consistently, and I'm not really sure what it is. But they complain about purity culture. They say purity culture went overboard, it made us ashamed of sex, and it blamed women for men's lust issues. They say the gender views in the church are oppressive to women, and they do great harm to them. Evangelicals are too political. They're shills for Donald Trump, and they're blind to the pride and damages of the right. They're just too political in their commitments. Um, evangelicalism avoids therapy, it avoids science, it's anti-science. And here's, okay, here's the thing. I hope I, I hope I don't get misunderstood. There is truth in every one of those complaints. I don't think every one of those complaints is true. And that's why it makes those, those discussions difficult. Because for me, I want to go, there's some validity to that. But that's not to say it's totally valid. It's kind of like someone who says of their parent, well, they did this, I mean, that mistake, they made that mistake, and they conclude, therefore, they were a bad parent and they hate me. And you're like, well, you might even be right about their mistakes, but you might be wrong about your conclusion here. <laughs> you may be overwhelming. And so it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, this is powerful PR, though, for the progressive Christian movement. They often don't talk about their central issues. They talk about complaints, and this is what the emergent church did back in the day. They were like, we'll complain about evangelical Christianity. We'll find the worst examples of bad things there. And that has set up a bad guy, so then, then we are therefore the purists, and we're the good automatically. And so it's not a careful or clear way of reasoning about life. But that happens a lot. Apologizing, though, you might think, well, I'll just, I have to just apologize. Yeah, purity culture made some mistakes, man. It's not women's fault if men lust after them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's biblical. Jesus is like, if you look at a woman to lust, it's probably because of her fault because of what she was wearing. <laughs> this is not, right? This is, men, it's always your fault when you have lust issues. Women, it's always your fault when you have lust issues. Men, it's always your fault when you're immodest. Women, it's always your fault when you're immodest. Like, this is, we all take our own fault. That's a biblical view. But, um, but yeah, purity culture, I guess, in some cases didn't do that. The gender stuff, there's definitely been major issues that have gone on there. Although, as you guys will find out, as I'm about to share my big exhaustive study on women in ministry, I am, I'm, I'm not on board with the progressive side of this either. So. so apologizing, though, won't help that much because the way this stuff is used in public, in discourse, is not to get clear thinking. It's to demonize evangelicalism as this sort of boogeyman so that progressive Christians, to justify whatever they're doing, all they must do is point at the evils of the other. This is the same as our, our political environment. Everybody, all they do is point at the evils of the other side, and then a lot of us who are looking for clarity are like, I don't know what's going on. So let's talk about, not about just the, the, the complaints against evangelicals. Because um, to me, evangelical has always meant I really believe in the core doctrines of the faith. I have a very high view of scripture and that kind of evangelicalism I'm all about and I want to keep holding on to. When it comes to Jesus though, surprisingly in progressive Christianity, this is a major symptom. There's a wide variety of views. They do not agree with each other. Richard Rohr, who again is like, he influences the influencers. Every progressive Christian pastor and leader reads Richard Rohr, right? Every other podcaster has him on as a guest. He believes in like a pantheistic, what he calls the cosmic Christ. That when God breathed creation into the world, that was the first incarnation of the Christ, which makes the universe Christ, which is your Christ. And Jesus was like the supreme example of this. 
this is not, this is like a mixture of like kind of a Buddhist, kind of Buddhist, mixed with pantheism, smashed into Christian terminology is what it is. Um, but that's Richard Rohr. Uh, his Christ is the spirit that is embedded in and makes up everything in the universe. Jesus, just a supreme example of it. So then you can look internally for that inner sort of Christ voice. We'll get to this a little bit later that will guide you spiritually. Now that is not Christianity by any, any stretch. This is definitely apostasy. Others, however, think Jesus is in the progressive Christian movement. Jesus is just a good teacher. He's just a good spiritual teacher, though his actual teachings are very selectively used. They very much love the Sermon on the Mount until it gets to the part where Jesus is like, you know, not one jot or tittle of the law, like let's ignore that part, but the love stuff, for the blessed. Oh, I love, man, those, those blesseds are really good. So they have a very selective use of Jesus. Jesus is highly edited to fit certain purposes. This is dishonoring to Christ ultimately. If you're going to say you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to take all of his words and not just some of them, or else it's just Jesus following you. Others, however, and this surprises some people, in the progressive Christian movement, there are some who are incredibly orthodox in their beliefs about Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross for my sins-ish, They'll define that very carefully so that it, it will not include any sort of penalty or, or substitutionary atonement, that kind of thing. But they do have at least orthodox beliefs about who Jesus is. Now, how in, in the world can there be a movement that is cohesive, that includes totally blasphemous beliefs about Jesus and totally orthodox beliefs about Jesus? Here's the symptom. Because progressive Christianity is not about Jesus. This blew me away as I'm studying and reading these things and I'm finally getting it. I'm going, I'm all about Jesus. I inherently think it's going to be some way, let's focus on the Jesus issue. It's just not about Jesus. LGBT issues. They are way more unified on the topic of LGBTQ stuff than they are on Jesus. A hundred times over. It's way more important. It's way more central. And it's way more of a fighting issue. You believe Jesus rose. You believe he didn't. Well, we can just hold hands and get along. You're LGBT affirming. You're not. Get out. This is more of a central issue. The church, on the progressive Christian view, the church is responsible for the suicides, depression, misery, alienation, and forced celibacy of people who are not heteronormative or whatever terminology you want to use. They don't see this as a compromise the way that many Christians would. Hey, I want to love those people, but I don't want to encourage them in a lifestyle that's not honoring to God and not, not what they're made for. They don't see it that way. They see it as a mama bear defending her cubs. Christians holding the traditional Christian ethics about sexuality are oppressive bullies and are hurtful to whole communities of people that just need the love of God. That's how it's viewed. That's how it's viewed. That's the perspective. So you can try to make a case and you can say, well, the Bible's consistent on LGBT, all these types of issues. Scholars, believe it or not, even non-Christian scholars agree on this point. The church history agrees. Throughout the whole scope of church history, there hasn't been debate and disagreement on this issue. And, of course, love does not mean approval and agreement. And I could say that to them blue in the face, but people, and even some people who go, yeah, I agree, until you don't agree with them, and then all of a sudden, the love doesn't mean that anymore. But it feels like it just doesn't matter. It feels like if you do convince a progressive Christian that the Bible's opposed to LGBT, like lifestyle, not people, okay, the whole point is to rescue people from our sins and point us to Christ, a true loving relationship with God and each other. But if you do convince them, they tend to just change their views of the Bible. Because the Bible's not central either. Jesus isn't central, the Bible's not central, and I would argue LGBT stuff isn't central either, it's still a symptom. We're going to try to get to the heart of it in a minute here. So, um, Jen Hatmaker, let me... Let me quote her now. She has a New York Times bestseller called Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, The Guide to Being Glorious You. Here's what she says about this topic. And I want you to feel the emotional weight of this, like you're a high school student at lunch, surrounded by five friends, and the issue of LGBT comes up, and someone looks at you and they go, you're Christian? And you go, yeah. And they go, well, why do you hate gay people? Now, I'm putting it that way not because everybody says that, but because it makes you feel the pressure of it, the social pressure of it. And then someone turns to you and they quote... Jen Hatmaker, who says, I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of every idea based on how it bears upon actual people. When loving God results in pain, exclusion, harm, or trauma to people, then we are absolutely doing the first part wrong. It is not God in error, but us. This is the thing. 
your Christian values, what you think are Christian values on LGBT issues are not, when it hits the life of real people, they're hurting them. So it can't be loving. So you must have it wrong. Whether that means you've changed your view of Jesus or of the Bible, they don't care. You gotta change. They define love differently than I think Jesus would. Um, Jesus, I think to rescue us from this, he says things like, if you love me, obey my commands. Our love for Jesus is different than our love for people. See, when I love people, I don't obey their commands. When I love Jesus, I obey his commands. When I love people, I extend kindness and self-sacrificial care for them. But I don't obey their commands. When I love Jesus, I obey his commands. Jesus also saves us from this idea because he talks about love like a hierarchy, which I think progressive Christians would reject. I think they have to reject it because of their views. Where Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. You can tell these are two very different kinds of things. I love God with everything I've got. I love him completely entirely with all I have. My neighbor, I love like I love me. That's lesser love, by the way, right? Uh, Progressive Christianity takes all that and, and it kind of reverses it. Love God by loving your neighbor and loving yourself. And there's some truth in that, but it's not the whole truth, and it's presented as the whole truth. When we do it that way, we're not able to tell somebody, your life is, your life is wrong. If they hear it as, I don't love you, we have to change what we say. And so that, that's an interesting dynamic that's going on there. John Pavlovitz, I was trying to look at how progressive Christians define love. He has a book called, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, which is actually not great advice. I just think of all, whenever I hear policies on how Christians have to act, I just start processing biblical stories. You know, like Jesus went and like overturned the money changers tables. Like, dude, that was that guy's livelihood. That was somebody's money table, right? He released the doves. He released them, the birds. Somebody owned those. Like that, they'd be like, well, you say Jesus is all loving and everything like that, but he like released my birds. Got rid of them. I just, or like Paul the Apostle who goes into a synagogue and he's like, hey guys, you know me. I'm that famous rabbi. I'm here to tell you that I was completely wrong. Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And I'm now going to argue with your synagogue leader in front of the synagogue, embarrass the tar out of them in front of everybody. Or modern sensibilities about what love means would be like, what, Paul, you really shouldn't do that. Right? Because we're, we're just, we're missing something there. And it's not, it's, we don't have the priority of loving God first that filters all other priorities. So John Pavlovitz says this in his book, If God is love, don't be a jerk, page 95. It doesn't matter how much phobic Christians sincerely believe they're loving sinners. If they ignore the, the pain expressed to them by LGBTQ human beings, and it doesn't matter if they tell themselves that they're just confronting immoral behavior in the name of God, if the methods they use inflict greater injury. Now let's pause for a moment and reflect that John Pavlovitz doesn't care that he just called Christians phobic and horrible people and that he inflicted injury and pain upon them and that's going to be because there's a major inconsistency in progressive Christians which is privileging certain people over others. But they argue against privilege but it's all privilege focused I think. But this is the view. It's like, hey look, if you're hurting them you've got to be wrong. And so all we need is for people to say, hey look, you're hurting me. So you have to change your theology. This, I'm going to coin a term here. I mean, I'm sure someone has said it somewhere, but we'll call it storytelling as truth making. Storytelling as truth making. So, like, let's say we hear a story about a gay man who felt outcast, depressed, suicidal, until finding love and acceptance in a progressive Christian community that finally embraced him and his partner as they are. And now he's joyful, and now he's happy, and now he serves in the church. That story is meant to tell you that you guys have to have this wrong because look, this man is very happy and satisfied now, but when he was doing things the way you say, he was very depressed and suicidal and unhappy. His story, his story of satisfaction proves you're wrong. Now, you realize this is a different way of doing theology, right? You're, you're used to maybe opening your Bible and going, well, it seems pretty clear. Here instead, we're gonna say, hold on, slow down. Nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> we're going to listen to the stories of these real people. Aren't you supposed to love people? And so you feel that this draws, plus it feels nice, man. Like, and that's, I'm not trying to deride it, I'm trying to understand the attraction. 
It feels very nice. Look, I have a, a desire for catharsis that is me getting along with everybody. And this feels good. This, I, that would draw me towards progressive Christian stuff. So there's a problem of counter stories. Uh, so you get stories of people who say, hey, I'm like, I was in the, the, the homosexual lifestyle. I thought I was happy, but I came out and now I'm fulfilled and joyous in a new way that I never knew before in Christ. Those kind of counter stories are really a problem because if storytelling is truth-making, how do you pick which story to believe? And so progressive Christians are forced to say, well, either good for you, right? Hey, that's good for you, but now let's just, let's loosen up the rules. Let's not make it about rules. Let's make it about personal satisfaction. Okay, so yeah, that's good for you. You found it that way, but don't put that on anybody else. Each person could find their own thing or their stories are doubted. Um, in a conversation, uh, Sean McDowell, who was, was speaking yesterday, he had with a progressive Christian, they both told stories. The progressive Christian told the story about the man who found total satisfaction in same-sex relationships in a progressive Christian community. And Sean told stories about numerous people he'd known who talked about satisfaction in Christ when they gave up those lifestyles. And what was interesting was the response. The progressive Christian responded like he had to pick which stories to believe. And he goes, well, I have a hard time honestly believing those stories because it's storytelling is truth-making. Now me, I'm like, I believe all those stories. I just think... My satisfaction does not prove the goodness and truthfulness of a thing. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it seems like a pretty significant worldview shift on this topic. Just because you're satisfied in Jesus doesn't mean it's true. Just because you're satisfied in a lifestyle that the Bible seems to say is incorrect doesn't make it a good lifestyle. There are other measures of truth beyond this. I'm trying to hold that consistently. But these counter stories are a problem. We'll, we'll see how they are resolving this now, I think, moving forward. But the Bible says it's wrong, that maybe it's unnatural or it's harmful, that it brings judgment and pain. No, 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 no. This is not our measure. The stories prove that it's good. So you have to change your view on those other things. This is a key symptom. I think it really gets us at the heart of the problem to address the appendicitis, whatever you want to call it. So there's also inconsistencies that I'll just briefly mention. They often rail against doctrine. Uh, we don't have doctrine. We don't have dogma. But they do, and they're extremely dogmatic about it. Um, this is just reality. There's, just, there's, there's a ton of important doctrine. It's just that it's different doctrines than they're used to. They're not the doctrines they're complaining about. They're the doctrines they're promoting. They say that ultimately God is kind of going to be defined as you define God from your inner. This is one of the reasons why they avoid doctrine, because it avoids your ability to define God for yourself. Although they would think we're discovering God. I'm looking internally, and I'm sort of discovering who God is. But we won't push who God is on anybody because we don't want to hinder each person's individual expression of what that looks like. But God is definitely LGBT approving, right? All I'm suggesting here is that there's an inconsistency here. We don't know for sure. You know, you discover God. We're not trying to push doctrines, but God is absolutely affirming for sure, for sure. And if you don't think so, it's because you're phobic or you're hateful or you're bigot or you're basically just like kind of a spirit, you're spiritually slow, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like underdeveloped. It's kind of a thing. So um, they don't have certainty. Certainty is bad. Certainty is, in, there's whole books written by progressives about the badness of certainty and the glorying and not being certain about things. But the things they're very certain about, they never notice they have certainty about that stuff. So there's, there's no mirror. Again, there's no mirror. And uh, it's, it's a hard thing to hold a mirror up to our, our own worldviews to make sure we're being consistent. But progressive Christianity is not consistent at all. They're certainly LGBT affirming. They're certainly pro-choice. They're certainly anti-evangelical. They all agree purity culture is a disaster. They all, they, all, they all agree on all those qualities. They're very certain about it. They're certain they, they don't like those things. Loving is also inconsistent. Love is an inconsistent thing. Okay, there's different versions of love. We think about it like smiling at people and being gracious and nice and stuff like that. Like, well, that's, that's like the lowest rung of love, in my opinion. Love is like self-sacrifice for the good and benefit of others. That, that's, that's like more up on the top as a Christian. I'm talking about like what Jesus did. I don't know if Jesus smiled at everybody that he met. But I know he died for everybody who sinned, right? Like that there's just a difference that's going on there. So those are um, some, uh, some of the uh, inconsistencies. Let's talk about how they treat the Bible. When you show them that the Bible clearly disagrees with them, how many of you have done this? You talk to a progressive Christian, whether they call themselves that or not, and you show them this verse, that verse, and they just don't care. Has that happened to you? And were you like, I feel like I got cheated. Because I thought we were having a discussion about the Bible as if it mattered. 
You argued for three hours that this verse didn't mean that. And I did a lot of work to try to show you and demonstrate that it really does mean that. And it is the, it is the best explanation. of. And then in the end, you didn't care. Right? In the end, you were like, okay, so fine. So it says that. So what? And you're like, wait, something else is going on here. What is going on here? Most progressive Christians agree that the Bible's important and it's a good source for at least some spiritual truth. Most of them will agree pretty much all on that. But the vast majority of them will also think it's majorly flawed. May I add them to a group of other people that believe this too? Muslims, the Bible is majorly flawed, even though they think that it is, is, is inspired. Mormons, only as translated correctly, which, which ends up being a nonsense phrase because it just ends up being only when it agrees with Mormon doctrine. Right? Pick a, pick a group, Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh yeah, the Bible is absolutely our authority. But we had to make our own translation because every other translation got things wrong. Especially about Jesus. <laughs> Every group does this. They find a way of dethroning the scriptures as the, as the spiritual authority. And so the Bible's majorly flawed. Here they start to sound like pop atheists I interact with online. The Bible promotes slavery, genocide, human sacrifice, patriarchy. It's been changed. It's been translated and translated. And what you have is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. Of a translation. Not, I mean, that's not factually true, but this is, the, this is the meme that goes around. It's ultimately not fully reliable. Now, here's what's interesting. I want you to feel this. If I was to tell you the Bible has corrupt moral values and it's been changed and it's not fully reliable, this would probably cause you distress if you were a typical Christian throughout the history of the world. To a progressive Christian, this brings comfort. This is a symptom. Why am I comforted by the idea that the Bible is wrong? That's a symptom. Something's going on. Something, it's alleviating a problem that I've got. So the Bible has major flaws. Whatever is causing progressive Christianity needs to find some way around the Bible's teachings. So first, they tend to attack it. And I see this over and over again in the books and the talks. Then they find a new way of using it because they don't want to abandon the Bible because you can't call it progressive Christianity. So... They want to use the Bible, but first it has to be dethroned. It has to be sort of filtered. It has, you have to get a pair of scissors so you could cut things out. This helps us see the real issue behind progressive Christianity. So I'm going to talk to you now about how they use the Bible. I've, I've seen this before, this symptom and others. Okay, so the progressive Christian problem is we have, we have values, wherever they're coming from, we'll talk about that in a second. We have values that are central to us that seem to disagree with the plain teaching of Scripture and the traditional values of Christians throughout history. So we need a way of filtering the Bible. Like, this is why many progressive Christians, on their way in, they're like progressive Christianity. And like six months later, a third are atheist, a third are non-religious, and maybe like a 30% are still progressive Christians. It's a, it's a doorway. It's not actually a building they're going to. It's just progressive Christianity is a doorway out of Christianity, very sadly. Okay, so you need an external filter to decide what's wrong with the Bible. So what happens now is Jesus shows back up. Jesus is the way to disagree with the Bible for many progressive Christians. Let me explain how that works. Richard Rohr says this. Listen carefully to this quote. He says, Jesus consistently ignored or even denied exclusionary, punitive, and triumphalist texts in his own inspired Hebrew Bible in favor of passages that emphasized inclusion, mercy, and honesty. For example, referencing two passages from Exodus and Leviticus, Jesus suggests the opposite and now he quotes Jesus. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. Richard Rohr's interpretation, remember I told you they love the Sermon on the Mount. Richard Rohr's interpretation of Jesus here is he's actually disagreeing with the Bible. Now, if you actually study the Bible <laughs> and look at the real history of the time, you'll realize eye for an eye is a biblical text about governmental penalties being the punishment fits the crime. That's all that is. Jesus is confronting people using this as an excuse for personal vengeance. Oh, so like if you steal someone's cow, you owe them a cow or two, right? Okay, under Exodus, right? There's this eye for an eye, equal. It's, it, it was an illustration. It's not like we're just running around poking out eyes. There's the quote people love. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And it's like, not if you're paying attention to the command, it doesn't. Like this is not what it means, you know? Eye for an eye is literally just saying equal justice. Jesus is, is against people using this for personal vengeance, right? Richard Rohr interprets this as Jesus publicly teaching to a group of Jews, hey guys, I know the Bible said this, but the Bible was wrong. 
That's his interpretation of Jesus. This is consistent in progressive Christians. Jesus is often interpreted this way. Richard Rohr goes on. He says, he, Jesus, read the scriptures in a spiritual, selective, and questioning way. I don't think ancients would have understood the phrase questioning way. This is a modern thing. Although I love questions, you guys know that. I'm just saying this is, it's foofy. (laughs) Um, Jesus had a deeper and wider eye that knew which passages were creating a path for God and which passages were merely cultural, self-serving, and legalistic additions. Right, that's why Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. No, Richard Rohr's Jesus is, I can show you how to break the scripture properly. What's wrong with this? Um, well, you obviously have to do careful reading. This is, this is part of our equipment. You want to protect people from progressive Christianity. Teach them to read the Bible in context. Because when they get to the Jesus parts where they're quoting Jesus, they're just immediately going to pull their hair out. And you're like, man, I, I know progressive Christianity is attractive, but it's just so stupid. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's so irrational. It's so not concerned about the Jesus they say they worship. He's a tool for some other commitment. Jesus is a bobblehead. This is our culture. This is the way we've been for years. Jesus is the bobblehead that nods in agreement with whatever you are obsessed with. Right? Every time I hear a, po- a politician quote the Bible, I'm like, you don't care about the Bible. You just think it adds authority to you for whatever you're saying right now. We come to scriptures to come underneath them. We come to Christ to come underneath them. But other, everybody wants to grab the Bible and Jesus like props right, to promote the thing that they're all about. Careful readings needed. This is consistent. Progressive Christians are always knocking down a straw man. They're always going to talk about the Bible as Pete ends in his book on, on how to read the Bible. He's like progressive Christian, right? He's, he's like, you know, people going to the Bible, they think it's just this rule book. It's just a rule book. And then he goes to argue against the Bible being a rule book. And I'm just like, well, I mean, parts of it are a rule book, but you can't, you just can't use the blanket statement. I mean, there's like a whole section called the law, right? Leviticus is a bunch of rules, Exodus has whole sections that are just rules. Then there's like poetry. There's like a love poem in the Bible. There's wisdom in the Bible. There's ancient history in the Bible. There's allegorical content in scriptures. Although you shouldn't make stuff allegorical, it's not. I mean, you just read it as it is. We have the life of Jesus. So it's not just a rule book, but neither is it just not a rule book. Read the Bible like with your brain. I mean, and this is this is the thing. Pete Enns is, is going to champion this. You've got to read your Bible with your whole brain, but they're always going to come against a straw man of Christian values. So if you are raised in a church that is high respect for Scripture but low thought on Scripture, you're going to be very prone to fall to progressive Christianity because you don't know what the Bible actually talks about, slavery, what's going on there. If someone convinces you, well, the Bible was supporting slavery, now you're going to be like that, that tinder that's ready to catch fire and... Say, yes, you're right, we need a pair of scissors. we got to find a pair of scissors. And then Jesus becomes the pair of scissors. So he goes on, Richard Rohr goes on to say that Jesus ignored most of the Bible. He says, uh, Jesus talks much more out of his own experience of God and humanity. Remember that phrase, his own experience of God. And humanity, instead of teaching like the scribes and Pharisees, who operated out of their own form of case law by quoting previous sources. Oh, this is so annoying. Richard Rohr is so deceptive. Okay, the the scribes and Pharisees quoted not case law, like in the generic sense, because case law would include Old Testament. They quoted previous teachers. They would always quote other rabbis and other sources. Jesus quoted straight from Scripture and then offered an interpretation directly of the Bible. The problem is that he subverted their traditions and went straight to the text of Scripture. Richard Rohr wants to take it as though Jesus was ignoring the Bible itself. Jesus obviously wasn't doing this. So Jesus disagrees with the Bible, he openly contradicts it, he leaves out stuff he doesn't agree with, so Rohr then gives you this set of instructions on how, to, how you should read the Bible. And this is consistent amongst progressive Christians, different versions of this. Meditate deeply, let go of previous beliefs, specifically previous Christian beliefs, <laughs> let go of those. Wait for a voice from God from within. Then you're going to listen. Then you're going to hear. Then it's going to be transformative. And what's happening is I can no longer take the plain meaning of the text. I I know I'm going to disagree with it, but there's going to be this inner voice that tells me what I should believe. Who's the authority now? Me. My heart, actually. Let me play for you guys uh, an example of how Richard Rohr talks about the Bible. Here's, here's, we'll play clip number one that is uh, Richard Rohr. The Dalai Lama in one sentence 
says for me what it took Paul the entire letter of the Romans to say. You Lutherans love Romans, and I do too, actually. But God, it's tortured logic. Oh, God. Paul is trying so get much to get us beyond the law, but just does know how to say it in a simple phrase. Well, the Dalai Lama does. He says, learn and obey the rules very well so you will know how to break them properly. Hmm? <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just laugh to our graves. Um, learn the rules so you'll know how to break them. That's his approach to scripture. Learn it so you know how to disagree with it in a sense. Um, anyway, I could talk for a while about his, that weird clip, but I'm gonna play another one. Here's Brian Zond. He believes that Jesus is sort of an internal voice in him and he can use this Jesus with him when he wants to disagree with the Bible. Let's play that clip. It's all because of Jesus. So I never go wandering around in the Old Testament without Jesus. So at any given moment, I can pause and I can say, Jesus, what do you think of that? And Jesus can say to me, Brian, what do you think of that? Well, it seems to me, Jesus, that in the light of what you taught us, that we have to rethink this passage. And I think Jesus says, amen. Bobblehead Jesus says, amen. What do you think, Jesus? Well, what are you think, Brian? <laughs> well, Jesus, in my, in my amazing wisdom of life, I think that the Bible's wrong here. And it said, yes, Brian, you're very wise. You know? <laughs> That's progressive Christianity in a nutshell. So Pete ends. He tells us that, God, that you know, passages in the Bible where, that are like, God told me to do what? Pete ends says, God never told him to do that. They just thought he did. Now, he's a legit scholar. Like legit scholar with real credentials, okay? Greg Boyd uses something called a cruciform hermeneutic, and I'll try to, it's really, even when he tries to explain it, people are like, what's he talking about? The basic approach to the Bible is this. On the cross, Jesus was suffering for your sins. He looked like he had done the things you had done. So in the, in the Old Testament, we use a cruciform hermeneutic, and we say, in the Old Testament, God isn't, he's not like that. He's just letting himself look the way you look. Judgment isn't God being angry or bringing wrath or judgment or you know, anything like that upon people. It's him, him showing you what your anger looks like. This is really clever, but completely unsustainable when you actually look at how Jesus talks about the Old Testament. Because he's looking at the cross and his vision of the cross as a way of interpreting the Old Testament. It's just a weird approach. But Jesus himself talks about judgment quite a lot. The Bible seems to think that God's wrath is good. And I, it's uncomfortable and hard for me, and I don't always appreciate God's judgment, but I'm not so arrogant as to think I'm right and he's wrong. One day we'll appreciate God's judgment, and one day that will happen. But the inner voice guides you on what truth to believe. Uh, Glennon Doyle is probably the most famous of these people that I was looking into. She wrote the best-selling book, Untamed. She's got like almost 2 million followers on Instagram right now. She was a Christian blogger who left her husband for a lesbian relationship. But this was not a bad thing in her view. This was an epiphany, a religious epiphany, and she writes about it. You're supposed to put yourself and your desires first. This is part of the, the awakening that she experienced. She says, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. As a quote from her, this is considered, but you don't understand, you feel like it's bad. This is like the epiphany. Oh, like, yes, my inner desires are telling me what my purpose is. My need for satisfaction, that is my spiritual guide. This is progressive Christianity. This is the heart. It's not about Jesus. It's not about the Bible. Those are just the things that we're bringing along as bobbleheads on our journey. I like this bobblehead analogy. I hadn't thought of it. It wasn't in my notes. I was like, yeah, yeah. I should have put that in my notes. That's good. It's really accurate. Alisa Childers rightly evaluates Glennon Doyle and says, by reversing the biblical narrative, she turns the Christian worldview on its head. And I love this quote from her. She says, sin is no longer what's wrong with the world, but unrealized ambitions. Doesn't that make sense? That's, that's what's tying together L, G, B, and T. This is my, this is my inner need. And it's, I believe it's a spiritual need that needs to be filled for me to achieve these dreams and these ambitions that I've got. 
So it's exhilarating. It's like an adventure when you cast off the shackles of Christianity that you've been raised with and you're able to sort of forge your own path with Jesus and the Bible along to approve of you as you seek into, look into your inner self to find your ambitions. And so when you go at them, at the, when you quote the Bible, hey, progressive Christian, but the Bible says that's wrong. You're attacking their core ambitions, their inner self. You're destroying their spiritual journey. This is why they can't stand you in their fellowships. <laughs> why they're willing to hold hands with anybody who agrees or disagrees on other issues. It's exhilarating. My beliefs end up fitting so well with what I want. It's a reinvented spirituality that's tailor-made to make you feel good about yourself. So they're very united. So what's the heart? Here's my diagnosis of progressive Christianity, at least as my current understanding of it. Maybe I'll grow and learn, learn it better. My diagnosis, the thing that's at the heart of it is that your inner sense of goodness and personal purpose is your spiritual authority and compass. Your inner sense of goodness, not just all your desires, your inner sense of goodness and your personal purpose, two different things there, they are your spiritual authority. It's not just that you are the authority, it's that your heart's desires, particularly the ones that feel good and proper to you for whatever reason, they're your spiritual guide. So hate and bitterness aren't positive, and we don't want to feed those. Those don't feel good. They don't feel right. But same-sex relationships absolutely is. As long as it's couched in uh, who I really am deep down and what I really need to be to be complete and satisfied. This is why uh, transgender has to be supported too, because it's a sense of, this is who I'm supposed to be. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, my inner need, like if you're going to feed yours, you've got you to approve of mine too. And that feels good. Like it does feel good to just go around approving everybody all the time. I mean, you end up becoming like insane in reality when you do this. But, but I mean, you guys know people who do this. All they do is approve people all the time. And you're like, you're a walking contradiction, but you're very, you get along with everybody really well. So, so I'm just saying I understand the attraction that's there. So same-sex relationships, um, they, they will never come against it. They'll come against abuse in relationships, abuse in same-sex relationships, but not the nature of the relationship. Nothing could be wrong with that. The progressive Christian has to embrace it as true. Uh, a trans person only has to say, this is who I feel I'm supposed to be, and it's like a deep core identity thing, and then you have to approve it because the internal, your internal light, your internal guide, this is the thing that shows you who you are. Universalism has to be true because if your journey and your heart at the, are at the center of spirituality, that is completely in conflict with God one day judging you. You're the hero of the journey. Of course you have to win in the end. <laughs> you can't end with you being the bad guy. Like, that, that doesn't work with that worldview. So universalism is, is across the board. Uh, whatever they think of heaven, they, they definitely approve of universalism. Um, rejection of constricting doctrine is definitely important because constricting doctrines are where I place requirements on you. If I give you a doctrine, now I'm limiting that journey where you look for this inner light to guide and direct you towards these, these spiritual experiences. So I can't give you doctrines. This is why doctrines, it's not that they're just wrong, it's that they're, they hurt my path. This is part of the reason. Let me show you guys this in action. Uh, here's a clip from Rob Bell. And then you think about, for many people, for roughly 1,400 years in Western culture, you've had this idea of original sin, which is that which is deepest within a human is wrong, off, broken, sinful. So no wonder people end up not able to trust their own inner knowing. They've been taught that if you look far enough and side of yourself, all you'll see is evil and darkness. Mm. But what's fascinating is the actual tradition begins, Genesis 1, all human beings bear the divine image. That which is deepest within you is good. Yeah. Of course we have tremendous capacity to make a mess of things. Nobody's fuzzy on this. Well, I think he's fuzzy on it. You, you have a tremendous capacity to make a mess of things, but your inner knowing is your guide for all spiritual truth. Like, those don't work together, actually. <laughs> Okay, let's look at this in action. Your inner knowing. I think Glennon Doyle talked about her inner knowing. Rob Bell, uh, Glennon Doyle, Brian Zond, Greg Boyd, Pete Enns. Fill in the blank. Your inner knowing or the Jesus that speaks to you privately becomes your guide. But that Jesus, of course, is bobbleheads to whatever you say. So, okay, I want to see the next clip is this in action. It's a bit of a longer clip, but this is in action. It's a, it's a, it's a debate discussion between Rob Bell and um, Andrew Wilson, I think it is, and... Um, Andrew Wilson did a really good job with it. But notice the two moves Rob Bell does. You don't know what the Bible says. It's fuzzy. He doesn't have to say it's wrong. All he has to say is at least it's fuzzy. You don't know that it says that. And 
The second move will be, so we have to let people's stories tell us what reality really is. So let's, let's play that. I'd just be interested to know what, what it is about that makes you feel confident that this isn't just Rob Bell going liberal. This is actually Rob Bell being true to Christ, being true to the scriptures. Well, I, I think the better question is, what does it look like when it's lived out? And I've been in lots and lots and lots of settings with lots of friends and lots of people who have same-sex relationships, and it's not destructive, and it's not evil, and it's not it's a part of how churches are. It's a part of how life is, and it's fine. That's the that's surely to, that's the, to beg the question, though, isn't it? To say I've been in lots of friends relationships with people who are doing this, and it's not destructive or it's not evil. Surely, God gets to define that, doesn't He? Over and above, not to speak about the individuals concerned, but God gets to provide that definition rather than my observation. It's like you can imagine people in the period of one or two kings, which I'm going through in my quiet times at the moment, going, "Well, actually, I know lots of people who who worship at the high places, and and they still follow Yahweh. That's great." And the, the scriptures don't seem to have that attitude. They seem to be saying, no, 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 there, is, there are moments, a lot of them, where Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, he needs to hate, in the sense of lesser love, these, all of these things that you might otherwise have to lose if you follow me. And of course, Paul was like that. It cost him his, his life, and it cost, it cost Jesus his life, obviously. It cost him sexual relationships. Neither of them had those things. So it, it sort of doesn't God get to draw that line rather than, I shouldn't say you, I know there's others who are doing it too, but why isn't, that, why isn't the fact that Scripture speaks that way and the fact that Paul, Moses, Jesus speak that way, why isn't that the end of the conversation in terms of defining what something might be, to be evil and destructive, what something looks like? Your interpretation of verses? My interp- no, not my interpretation. Well, of course it is. We're all doing our own interpretation of verses, but it's not only an interpretation of verses. It's, it's an understanding of the sweep of Scripture starting from the very beginning where you have one man, one woman in permanent relationship and you go all the way the through the sweep. rest of the your well, understanding of the sweep of scriptures. Well, understanding of Genesis 1, understanding yeah. of Genesis 2, understanding of the Torah, understanding yeah. of the prophets, understanding of Jesus, understanding of Paul, Revelation. Of course, that's, that's always what we're talking about. But I think to say, oh, but that's your understanding. Of course, it is my understanding, just like yours yeah. is yours. But yours, unlike mine, is obviously in the, in the face of apparent meanings of lots and lots of texts supported by almost every scholar. And it's also in the face of 2,000 years of Christian tradition in which that hasn't been the way people have read any of those texts. There you go. <laughs> I do have to explain. Yeah, it's, it's your interpretation. It's your view. It's your perspective. Those things are wrong. Okay, to summarize, this seems to explain the symptoms. I become my spiritual authority. Spiritual truth is grounded in my personal experiences and my perception of my goodness. The problem is that that's actually just being informed by culture. Culture is pushing uh, the sexual revolution, expressive individualism. Yeah, you might want to Google that term. And when I am being, this is why the, the influencers are influenced for a blip and they die, and they're not actually holding sustained things. They're just showing people the door out of Christianity using the fact that people are like, like dry tinder to this stuff because culture has told you that we're all on a hero journey and it's about finding you know, your path and expressing your true self, that it's ultimately loving me is above loving God in all reality. God is a, is a, is a me-serving entity, ultimately. So there's a lot more that could be said about this. I'll just mention this is where progressive Christianity is merging with cr- uh, critical race theory. And if you're going to be like, critical race theory is a boogeyman, I'm just going to say, look, critical race theory being a boogeyman is, the bo- is a boogeyman. Okay, let's like think about this like adults for a second. Critical race theory, part of this is the, while racism is a huge problem, I'm not denying that, critical race theory, though, is, is going to come alongside and say, we're going to privilege the stories of, of people in the category of the oppressed. Their stories are going to give us the reality of situations and then we'll underprivilege, we'll lower the privilege of those who we think in the past have had privilege. This allows the progressive Christian to filter the stories that fit their views with the stories that don't. You're heterosexual, oh, well, your story isn't privileged. We have to privilege the stories of the LGBT community. Whereas I think a biblical view is to say, I'm going to listen to all your stories. They tell me about your heartache and your life and your experiences, but they don't tell me the truth of reality. God has an authority to trump even my heart. And that is consistent in scripture. So I would share with them like Jeremiah, where he says like the prophets are prophesying prophecies of their own heart instead of listening to my word. Right? Or where Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. Or he tells us to love God above ourselves. Or how he kept telling people to repent. And it wasn't just of 
It was, it was of all the stuff. <laughs> it was of all the stuff. Anyway, there's a lot more that could be said, but I'm, I'm all out of time. So uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I, I hope that this helps give you at least an angle. If, if I could suggest one thing, right? My mom had appendicitis. The, the cure was to, I think, just to rip her appendix out. But, <laughs> but, um, but I think the, the focus then as we discuss things with people that are really caught up in progressive Christianity is maybe start the discussion with, is God able to tell you that your heart is, being, is mistaken, even about your own satisfaction in life? Is, does God have the authority to tell you that you're wrong, even about your own perceptions of your own life? Does God have that place? And if their answer is yes, then you bring in the other things, biblical support, because it's going to come back to that. But my life is telling me, but my life, and you go, but wait, but I thought God had authority to tell you. And this is, this is like going to seem like a bigoted Christian evangelicalism when there are colonials, something or other going on there. But in reality, it's like, it's like in what world, in what world is it reasonable to think that humans cannot be completely confused and corrected by God. This doesn't seem like brain surgery to me. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, that brings this message to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your feedback on episode 448, What's Wrong with Progressive Christianity with Mike Winger. Also, thanks to the Bible Thinker team, especially Sarah Zimmerman, for giving me permission to play out this message on my podcast. On a previous episode, Kim wrote in, near the end of your discussion, you said that belief in the accuracy of the Bible was secondary. My question is, secondary to what? Are you saying that historical evidence is more important than biblical evidence of the resurrection and everything else that the Bible teaches? Good question, Kim. What I said was the gospel message is first and resurrection is at the core of the gospel message, so that is a non-negotiable. But how you view the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the Bible as a whole is extremely important, but it's secondary. Secondary for what? Secondary for salvation. You can be saved and not believe all of the Bible, so long as you believe the saving message of Jesus dying for your sins, God raising him from the dead, Jesus coming back to establish a kingdom— that you've heard that message, you understand it, you don't actually need the Bible at all to be saved. You can be saved by a conversation with a believer who is just telling you the message of salvation. The Bible, however, is what grounds our understanding in much, much more than just the message of salvation, which is very simple, very easy to say, Uh, but it tells you the whole background, it tells you all about who God is, who Jesus is, what the future will hold, and so on and so forth. So obviously the Bible is extremely important, and I am a Bible-believing Christian. I'm very happy to say that. I recognize the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. But my point in talking about this in the episode 444, Resurrection Objection 1, and that was with Aaron Schellenberger, my point in talking with him about that is looking at a starting point for convincing somebody who doesn't already believe in the scripture. And so as a starting point, what you really want to do is convince that person, if possible, depending on what their cultural assumptions are, and if they're coming from a postmodern or modern mindset, or if they accept logic and history, then, you know, that's obviously big, a big part of this. But if they do, then if you can convince somebody that God, in fact, raised Jesus from the dead, then sharing with them the gospel message is going to be a lot easier. And if somebody believes in the gospel message, then sharing with them your reasons for believing in Scripture as authoritative and inspired is going to be a lot easier as well. And one thing leads to another. That's really what I was talking about. You can be a Christian and not have all of Scripture. You can be a Christian and not hold a conservative view of Scripture. This really ties into our episode today about progressive Christians. Now, within progressive Christianity, there are some progressive Christians that are going to say, you know what, as, as Mike Winger mentioned, I don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus anymore. Well, look, at that point, you're no longer a Christian. You're no longer, I, you're, you no longer believe in the gospel message because you no longer believe that Jesus was raised from the dead or that Jesus died for your sins or that he's coming back to establish God's kingdom. You know, these three prongs, if you will, of the gospel message are, in my estimation, total non-negotiables, as is God's existence, Right. But there are a great many progressive Christianities and mainline Christians who want to affirm postmodern cultural ideals and 
still do genuinely accept the gospel message as is contained in Scripture, even though they might reject a lot of other Scripture. And for those people, I would still count them as saved Christians. Not that it's really my opinion that matters. Ultimately, it's what God says on the last day. But uh, hopefully that clarified a little bit. This is a fascinating topic. If you want to know more about Mike Winger, just type in Bible Thinker, and you'll be able to find all his videos. He just turns them out one after another. Some of them, are, I think, are really helpful, and others less so. I don't agree with him on everything, so I'm not going to endorse every one of his videos or beliefs. He is coming from an evangelical point of view, so there are going to be some differences there. But uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. That's the word restitution with no N, and it stands for restoration. And that's what we're doing here at Restitutio. We're restoring authentic Christianity and living it out today. So it's a very much a Bible-oriented podcast. We're getting back to Scripture, interpreting it within its context, and then asking the hard questions about what that means for us today. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.